Regardless of industry, the concept of innovation as an organized corporate endeavor is ever-present in companies big and small. And while there is no shortage of great ideas, why does it sometimes seem that relatively few are well-deployed? How can organizations experience a better return on investment and execute a clear path to market for their emerging ideas? The answer lies in developing strategic innovation plans. Hello, I'm your host, Paul Teese, and on this episode of If Win, we discuss the topic of strategic innovation and what differentiates it from research and development with Dr. Gina O'Connor, Professor of Innovation Management and Fisher Family Chaired Professor at Babson College, and Heather Wishart-Smith, Senior Vice President, Technology and Innovation at Jacobs. Well, Gina and Heather, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to talking with both of you about strategic innovation. We've subtitled this Going Beyond Research and Development, and uh, I think it's going to be a fascinating conversation. Uh, I think sometimes people conflate R&D with innovation and uh, you know, knowing kind of the, the writings that you both have produced what you've talked about in innovation before, you know, there's a lot more to innovation than just pure R&D. So kind of jump right into it uh, here. Gina, let me start with you. How would you characterize what strategic innovation is and how is it different from research and development? Yeah, thank you, Paul. So I wanted to just start off with the research and development part. You know, there's so much great scientific research that's going on where we're sort of discovering new principles, um, laws of nature, if you will. And uh, I think about science research as kind of the science of, of discovering things in nature or in, you know, in our physical world. And engineering is more the development where we're inventing, which is the application of science and technology to really solving a problem. So R&D is kind of all of that part where how are we taking what we know from the worlds of science and applying it in useful ways to, to problems. But if you stop there, things don't get to the market. There's so much work to be done to formulate an opportunity space and to begin to understand what a value proposition might be. If it really is something that's big, some sort of a moonshot, if you will, Mm -hmm. you're going to need partners to develop complementary technologies. You have to figure out where you're going to sit in the value chain and how you create uh, that sort of a business model. All the work on manufacturing process engineering, your operating model, even the form factor of the product, if it's a product or or offering, and then the whole go-to-market strategy all the way through to launch. So all of that work that's more around the, the commercialization processes has to be done. And that's typical in any new product scenario. Now, so the distinction between a new product development and a strategic innovation is that for most companies, you know, we know our current, our markets, we know our customers, and we're developing new products one after the other to stay ahead of the competition and keep our customers delighted, you know, beyond satisfied. Mm -hmm. The strategic innovation part starts to come when you want to think about renewing your organization. You know, how do you rejuvenate your organization to go beyond your current businesses of today and to create what we'll call the new streams to complement your current mainstream businesses? 
And the reason we call it strategic, and we used to call it breakthrough innovation, you know, horizon three, there's all kinds of uh, lingo for this. Mm-hmm. But the strategic, the reason that I really like the strategic innovation idea is because there's uncertainty at many points in this process and on many dimensions. You know, there's technology uncertainty and market uncertainty, but also a lot of organizational and strategy uncertainty. So we have to make strategic choices as we're creating these new streams of growth for ourselves. So they become more strategic innovations. And we determine that we're going to start to invest in creating this new stream for ourselves. And everything's not going to be rosy because it is risky and uncertain. Mm -hmm. So that's why we, we go with the term strategic innovation. So let me ask you this, you know, and I, I think that's an excellent point about how strategic innovation is is much more, there's much more to it than just, you know, experimentation for experimentation's sake and that you have to have that path to market. Do you think larger organizations tend to balk at taking concrete steps to implement strategic innovation programs? And if so, why do you think that is? Well, I think there's times in each of their life cycles where they balk. And what we see as we study, examine how companies, mature companies go at this is kind of they're all in, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's the program du jour and then they get bitten. And so then they're all out. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason that that occurs is because we just haven't learned enough about how to do the innovation part of, of strategic innovation. You know, you started off asking me about R&D mm-hmm. and we've gotten, you know, we're, we're very much trimming our R&D budgets and we're going out in an open innovation framework, a lot of partnerships with universities. There's all kinds of ways of getting at the science and doing the engineering development. A lot of that part happens in-house. But the parts where we have to start to craft these new stream business models, mm-hmm. it's it really requires a different kind of a management system. Your metrics have to be different. The processes you use have to be different. Even we find the kinds of talent that you're using has to be different. Your governance mechanisms, you have to come at it sort of at at a portfolio approach because there's a lot of failure involved in this. Mm -hmm. And companies haven't learned yet to build that kind of a management support system for this to have the kind of steady state staying powered continuously create these kinds of things. So I think we're getting much closer to it and we see so much more activity in this space, Mm -hmm. but I still see this program du jour kind of a thing, as opposed to really beginning to think of this as a permanent sort of steady state level of investment in building this as a capability for your company. Mm, That's an excellent point. Now, Heather, you know, Gina touched on that idea that companies go all in, they get excited, then they get, you know, bit, which may be that, you know, they didn't see an immediate return on investment or something like that. And so then they they start to back out. And, you know, that seems to be a somewhat common phenomenon, you know, that we hear from from different quarters. So let me ask you, you know, you know, you're you're in charge of building the innovation culture at Jacobs, you know, from your perspective, how should organizations pace the funding of their innovation programs? Because, you know, that's, that's going to be key, of course, is the company is really sincere, you know, will put some money behind it and, and kind of help to engender like what Gene is saying, that staying power. So how, how should they pace the funding? 
Sure. Thanks, Paul. So I, I think the answer that I would provide that I'm providing today mm-hmm. at the hopefully near the end of the pandemic is probably very, or not very, but somewhat different from what it would have been even, you know, 14, 15 months ago. And I love the quote from Graham Wood where he said, change has never happened this fast before and it will never be this slow again. Mm-hmm. I think the pandemic really accelerated the pace even more than it was before. He actually wrote that 11 years before the pandemic started. So mm-hmm. I, I think organizations need to be impatient patient in order to be able to get at, get out ahead and then avoid being disrupted. But I think when I say impatient, I think they need to be impatient about the right things. Mm-hmm. So what I mean by impatient is, you know, being impatient about getting started, being impatient about getting rid of bureaucracy and red tape. Bureaucracy and red tape can slow things down and in some ways can almost be a sort of way of avoiding doing the hard things when it comes to innovation, but also impatient about killing projects that aren't going to meet your objectives, those sorts of things but not impatient about seeing immediate, faster and financial results and growth. Mm -hmm. So with that, I think one effective strategy is to approach the buildup of an innovation program, similar to how you might fund an innovation project with lean startup methodology. And that's where, of course, where you build, you measure, you learn, and then start by understanding and reframing the problem. What are you even trying to solve with this innovation program you're trying to stand up? Create your hypothesis of a solution by building an MVP, a minimum viable product, and then test that MVP. Mm-hmm. See if it's if it's going where you want it to go. Create the innovation program with the expectation of, a, of it evolving as you go, not that it's going to be that, that you're going to start, that you're going to finish the way you started. And then finally, once you do all that, then look to scale. So, I mean, because I, I think it's certainly possible to jump in, you know, all in with a huge innovation program to start. But I don't think that's what I would recommend. And I think it's valuable to practice the innovation methodology that we preach. So be impatient about getting started. Be impatient about testing your MVP of an innovation program. But don't be so impatient that you dump a whole bunch of money into a program before you've tested it, before you've seen that it's, and you know, confirmed that it's what you need. Mm. Yeah. And I can see that because, you know, if, if, if organizations get really excited, all right, now we're going to be innovative. And they, they, go, they go all in, like Gina had said earlier. And then they're mm-hmm. not getting the results, the immediate results that they're thinking, because it is kind of, it is a long game. It's not a short game right. that then they, they get frustrated and, you know, and then executives kind of pull that sponsorship. And then suddenly it's like they, they've killed it before it's even had a chance to flourish. So how, uh, Heather, should they temper their expectations of results? So this is where I think organizations need to flip from being impatient, what I was talking about earlier, mm-hmm. to being very, very patient. Because too often there's this expectation of immediate results, immediate gratification. Mm -hmm. And realistically, some innovations may take years to deliver results. So I think it's a matter of shifting what we mean by results. In the late stages, then it's often the end game financial results. But in the early and middle stages, I think we should be focusing on progress, on methodology, on culture change. So it's a matter really of changing how you define results depending on what stage of the process you're in. Professor Amar Bidet in in Origin and Evolution of New Businesses, I love this. He said, when winning strategy is not yet clear in the initial stages of a new business, Mm -hmm. good money from investors needs to be patient for growth, but impatient for profit. I just, I love that because I think it really shows how critical it is. We very quickly need to test and discover whether an innovation has promised in order to meet our long-term objectives Mm -hmm. We need to be impatient for profit, impatient to make sure that it's going to work. 
but we really need to make sure that we recognize how critical it is to get the model right before we scale. And that's that being patient for growth. Mm, that's a good, good point. Now, Gina, you know, there's no shortage of great ideas and, but, you know, it seems that relatively few of them are well executed. Why is there a breakdown between the discovery phase and the incubation and acceleration phase? And how can organizations shift so that they realize a greater ROI from their great ideas slash R&D departments? Well, you know, I think if we start to think about what Heather is talking about in terms of patience, Mm -hmm. what we find actually is in our lexicon of discovery, it's not just about the R&D either. I mean, that is where we're actually starting to articulate what opportunities could be. And, And instead of thinking about one opportunity, what we talk about is a domain of an opportunity landscape where you come up with many use cases, many applications of a technology or, you know, or, or a space. Mm-hmm. And you start to go after each and every one of those so that over time, what starts to happen is it becomes pretty clear what the possibility is of this as a whole new business platform for us. And so coming out of discovery, what you want is a richness of an opportunity landscape So we find that, you know, you kind of come up with one idea and you jet set it through. The likelihood of it working is probably pretty low if it really is in these more out there fields, not not your typical new product development where you know, you know, where you have lower uncertainty. Mm -hmm. So, but once that occurs, what we really find is that when Heather mentions about patience, the incubation aspect of things of vetting what these opportunities are and beginning to think about what business models there are, what the value propositions are and to whom for each of these things, we really in in organizations today tend to short circuit that. They frequently will go after, you know, what are the market, the markets that want this and the value propositions. But what we find fails to happen at a project level is continuing to vet this internally within the organization because a lot of times where the market will lead you as you're beginning to investigate and pivot with the business model canvas and the lean startup methods, those things may take, the market may tell you the way that they want this business model to be valuable to them is very different and foreign to what the organization is used to providing. And so you find this split between what you thought was going to be the proper organizational home, the proper business unit, for example, because the business model is so dramatically different in terms of what you're looking at in the market. So all of the organizational uncertainties tend to get in the way. And that the projects that we've observed, that's what submarines most of these, these opportunities is that they, they don't necessarily align more you're learning in the market where the real opportunity, the real money is. Uh, sometimes it becomes less and less aligned with your current organizational structure and current setup. And so it's those kinds of discussions that need to kind of be ongoing and continue to happen. That's why I, again, go back to strategy, you know, how, how do we align with our vision of our future, not necessarily with our current organization as it is today. Yeah, I mean, it seems like it's uh, a lot of it is culture. And I mean, you know, you hear the culture, you know, how, how important it is. And it eats, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast or whatever the, 
you know, the, whatever the, uh, the cliche is, but it's like, it seems like, uh, culture does play a big part, you know, that you can't take an organization that is outfitted a certain way or oriented a certain way. And just because there's innovations in the marketplace, you want to, you want to achieve that you're just suddenly going to flip the switch overnight and that culture is going to be, you know, going to change. You have to have some realism about what your organization is and, you know, and and work toward that. And, you know, that that takes patience. Yeah. And also I think it it just takes, you know, like what Heather was saying, like how do we kind of roll this out Mm -hmm. using the lean startup method? You know, the, the first question is what's our objective. And so, there, there are, you know, new stream creation initiatives that, where the mandate for that is that it's supposed to align with the current business unit, you know, and current customers, but just maybe be further future. And if we're clear on that, then, then that's great, you know, but there are also elements where we kind of say we, we want to go beyond our current structure where we are today and kind of open that one up and, unconstrain ourselves from that. And then we cannot expect a culture to change. You need to maintain the culture that you've got in your mainstream because that's what's doing today's business. And I mean, you want to keep that healthy. Mm -hmm. So that's why we kind of talk about this mode where you have a group of people who are working on this new stream thing that may or may not be aligned with your current business, but their job is to really kind of create the future for the organization. And within that, that group, that team, and who they report to, that culture has got to be dramatically different from what is happening in today's business. Mm. You know, but I, I am not an advocate of trying to change the whole company's culture to create these strategic innovations. We, the culture may be very, very valuable for getting today's business done. Mm-hmm. And we don't want to disrupt that. Mm. you know, today. So interesting. Now, Heather, you had mentioned earlier, you know, you had quoted Graham Wood and you talked about the disruptions and then like how COVID, you know, really kind of accelerated that, you know, so here we are, we're a year into life with COVID. What has been learned across the corporate innovation landscape in this context, from your point of view, you know, what's changed for the better, for the worse, you know, what opportunities, good and bad have been uncovered during this time? Well, of course, I think it depends on which industry, which organization, which market you're in, you know, from the early days on, mm-hmm. depending on where you were, I, th- I think for a lot of people, the early days may have felt like an apocalypse. Um, mm-hmm. And especially in the innovation side of things, depending on where you were, what market, what organization, what industry, mm-hmm. it may have been treated, innovation may have been treated as a, a nice to have, a luxury that your organization may have felt that it could no longer afford. But you know, I, that's one thing that I'm actually really proud of Jacobs for is that in the early days of COVID, mm-hmm. uh, we stood up a COVID-19 health system critical response team. And the whole intent of this was to develop this global approach to our response. We were already ranked number one in healthcare by engineering news record, but the pandemic really helped us to understand that we weren't really approaching healthcare as a, a we didn't really have a global approach. And, and what I'm proud of is the fact that I was asked to lead it. So we chose to lead with innovation during a time of crisis. And I think that's something that's really exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not always the case. I think, again, sometimes innovation is treated like an unaffordable luxury, which is you know, unfortunate. 
But I, I think, you know, some of the things that I think are better overall for, you know, not just speaking for, for Jacobs, but for a lot of different uh, organizations is our, our stronger reliance on global teams. So with so much more increased use of video conferencing and doing things remotely, it means that it's become second nature to turn to a global team instead of just looking to see who's available in your region. It really no longer matters where the person is located. Sure, there are you know some challenges at times with time zones and whatnot, but you know I think it, it's helped us to really look globally first. But some things that may be for the worse is um, you know probably that loss of those serendipitous interactions, those opportunities to explore things in a, a personal way. Mm-hmm. I, I know at least for me, I feel like workdays feel so structured, so much more structured than they were before. I'm not saying that I have more meetings, but I feel like there's less opportunity to just pick up the phone and call someone. If you feel like you want to talk to someone, you feel like you need to schedule a call, you need to have an agenda, you should cover the information that's on the agenda. And so really what we lose there, I think, is that it's it's harder to get to know people as individuals. It's harder to get to know what they're working on if it's not on your agenda. When you know when you have to schedule time with them, when you can't just bump into them in the kitchen or, or you know meet up with them at a team dinner. It really takes that deliberate effort to regain the opportunity for, you know, dot connecting. And a lot of that dot connecting can lead to innovation. So that's, that's the part that I do think that we've lost during this time. Yeah. And it's interesting because I think that, you know, you really hit on that, that tension between resilience and innovation, you know, during times of crisis. Mm -hmm. So yes, we are in a time of unmitigated crisis, you know, We've we've never kind of shut down the world before and mask mandates and all this other stuff, you know, like like we're now dealing with. So the natural inclination is, you know, avoid risk, play it safe, take care of core business. I'm just saying kind of speaking broadly. And so those companies, organizations, they're going to have a little bit more of that intestinal fortitude to, to go out on a limb and innovate in a time of crisis are probably laying the groundwork for future success because they had they had the courage to innovate at a time when others were pulling back. I guess time will bear that out, but it seems to me that that might be fortune favors the bold, maybe. And the bold and the nimble, I would say. The ability to be nimble, to be flexible, to change when your original path is no longer possible or viable. Mm-hmm. Now, Gina, you had... Uh, authored an article and uh, you mentioned taking the opportunity to reconsider your domains of innovation intent. Uh, Can you elaborate for our audience on what this means, especially as it relates to innovation versus, you know, R&D? Yeah, I think that was an article about the pandemic and, you know, how should we be thinking moving forward? Mm -hmm. Um, the, The concept of domains of innovation intent is a little bit of, it's, it's what I was referring to broadly earlier, which is that there is today and there is the pandemic and there's definitely the crisis kind of things that we've had to deal with this year. Mm-hmm. But if you think outside of the pandemic first and uh, you think about organizations that need to ensure that they're not gonna be disrupted by creating these sort of new paths of growth for themselves because every one of our businesses unless they're on a huge growth path, they're basically dying. Some competitor is coming in and nibbling away and commoditizing or, you know, some new technology is going to come in. So it's about constant renewal through new streams of growth. So the concept of a domain of innovation intent is it's imagined futures 
and not just imagined based on sitting around, you know, in a cloud of smoke and coming <laughs> up with something, <laughs> but really looking at trends and multiple kinds of trends and how they could come together mm-hmm. and including technology and science trends, but social trends, et cetera, and really starting to articulate how that could really impact a problem area, a raise an opportunity space that we as a company, Jacobs, for example, Mm -hmm. need to really take a lead in and we need to have a stake in the ground. And that future may not take place for, for 10 years, but we all know what's coming. You know, we all know that there is a fresh water problem. We all know that there's a huge climate change problems. You know, there's there used to be a, a, there's a smart city issue. There's always these huge kind of issues arising. Mm-hmm. And then the key is how do we start to articulate a domain of innovation intent associated with that problem or opportunity space? And we we write it in almost a paragraph form and describe what that really is or could be. And I've heard, I've seen senior leaders from Corning do this. I've seen them from Uh, A number of different companies, many different companies try to do this and some really struggle with doing this. But what it allows you to do is then gain leadership commitment to those domains of innovation intent and then begin to backcast as opposed to forecast forward. Mm -hmm. Now you say, we've got this future. Now, what do we need to do to get there? And that becomes the guardrails in which you unleash the creative idea generation that will help us move forward. So now you've got a portfolio of opportunities that you're trying with your MVPs and all those things within each of those domains of innovation intent. And so it's not the, there's no distinction from R&D. R&D is guided by it. Our, Mm. Our strategic partnerships, our alliances are all guided by how we execute on these domains of innovation intent. Hmm. Now, Heather, you know, Gina was talking about kind of, you know, future forecasting, you know, future planning. And Jacobs, you know, uh, coincidentally is undergoing a significant transformation effort itself right now uh, called Focus 2023. Can you tell us a little bit about that effort and how a strategic innovation mindset is allowing the company to ensure its evolving solutions have clear pathways to market and as potential sources of growth? Let me start out first by providing just a little bit of background. It's Focus 2023, uh, as as you said, that's the name of it. It's the transformation that we're going through to really transform us into being a company like no other. So Mm -hmm. there are 10 work streams from across a variety of areas. They include everything from growth to global integrated delivery. And the work stream that I'm leading is called How We Work Jacob Solutions. There are about a dozen initiatives under my work stream currently, and then you know hundreds across the entire Focus 2023. So what excites me most about this transformation is the, the very disciplined, very strategic approach we're taking to innovation. So there isn't really much that we're working on in the work stream I'm leading that we weren't already pursuing within our Beyond If innovation uh, program. But what really makes it transformative is the strategic approach we're taking across all of the hundreds of initiatives Mm company-wide to make sure that we're embedding innovation transformation into everything we do. So it's, it's, you know, we're really trying to break down a lot of those silos that previously prevented more widespread adoption of innovation. Mm -hmm. So we're also taking a much more portfolio type approach to our innovation investment. So what that means is things like balancing our portfolio of solutions to cover 
all three innovation horizons, making sure that we're covering different markets, different geographies, different stages, and you know everything from the way that we quote fill the funnel of innovation ideas across the business to how we filter and prioritize them for making sure that we align them with our strategy and, and taking a portfolio approach to even how we put them through an accelerator and then bring them to scale. All of these steps we're focusing um, not only on our corporate strategy and a strategic approach, mm-hmm. but we're also very focused on organizational change management, OCM, mm-hmm. because you know it really doesn't matter much what processes, tools, or systems we create. If we don't embed, embed innovation in our culture, we won't you know, achieve the growth we're seeking. So I, I definitely agree with what Gina was saying about, you know, making sure that we stay true to our, our core business. But mm-hmm. um, even that, that core business, we feel strongly in addition to the, you know, the, even the horizon three side of things, we still do feel like we need to continue to serve our, our clients in, in new and different and innovative ways. Yeah. And that's, that's a good point because, uh, you know, the clients are asking, I know at Jacobs, and I'm I'm assuming that most companies' clients are asking, you know, what are you doing in terms of innovation, or how are you innovating, or in some kind of way, they want to know what the value add is. You know, there there's some curiosity there. So, well, Gina and Heather, I want to thank you both so very much for joining me today and and talking about this. It's very fascinating, uh, you know, to really kind of peel back and and understand more about you know strategic innovation and kind of getting a, a deeper look on what companies and organizations need to do to, to get a little more serious about innovation and, you know, not just, you know, hosting the odd hackathon here or there, throwing some money at something, but really making like a, you know, making it a part of the culture and something that is going to be fully fleshed and, and allow the company to take those innovations to market. So I want to thank you both very much for, for your time today. Thank you. Thank you.